figure in the information age, but facts are in short supply. Reject the noise, ask bold questions, and pursue the truth with FBI whistleblowers and founding suspendables, Garrett O'Boyle and Steve Friend. This is the American Radicals Podcast. It is the American Radicals Podcast. I am not Steve Friend. I am Garrett O'Boyle. Steve is tied up today. I'm sure he'll give us a rundown when he gets back later on next week on Tuesday. But today is Saturday, February 3rd, and welcome to the American Radicals podcast, especially those of you on Rumble. I see you. I see you in the chat. Thanks for joining us on this Saturday. And we're going to get right into it, I think, because knowing me, we'll go along. So as you can see from the title, some more neighbors. I'm going to go deep into uh, our Holocaust Memorial Museum trip that every FBI employee has to go on. But first, I'm going to um, go to God's Word. So I think it's important to start here because I want you to to just ruminate, I guess, on what I'm going to read. It, it comes from Leviticus. And just as we go into this, this episode about talking about the Summer Neighbors exhibit from the Holocaust Memorial Museum, I think it's important to, to I guess, set the stage in this way. And I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version, so it's in Leviticus chapter 19. Verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. And then jump down to verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And I wanted to start with that just to get that into your brains because the the topics we're going to get into about the history of what humans have done to one another, about what is happening today, in our own country, and how it's simply human nature to do these things. And a lot of that, in my view, is because when we turn away from God's word, when we turn away from God's truth, when we turn into our flesh, when we turn into our sin, we're going to end up hating our neighbor. We're going to end up violating God's law, the the law I just read from. And I'll probably be referencing it a little bit throughout, um, especially as I'm sure you can understand with my background in the military and then as a police officer and then as an FBI agent, the the, the portion about uh, not dealing falsely or, I mean, that even goes back to, to the Ten Commandments. The, the Ninth Commandment is you shall not bear false witness. And, uh, you know, you see that type of thing repeated. And I think we all know that even if, if you don't have a biblical worldview. Um, but when, especially law enforcement, and as we'll see, neighbors um, dealing falsely with one another, and then later on, you know, you shall do no injustice in court uh, with with my background. That's obviously a, a huge proponent of, of my life and kind of what put me on this path is to do no injustice in that way. Um, but, you know, there's... A lot of people who would say, oh, here we go. He's going to talk about the Nazis again and, and you know, compare it to modern day. And, and so I guess, what, you know, as we get started into this, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address that right off, right off the bat. So this article also from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, it says, why Holocaust analogies are dangerous. This is from December of 2018 from Edna Friedberg. And I won't, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll, I'll read some of it and I'll address some of it. 
it starts off saying Nazis seem to be everywhere these days. I don't mean self-proclaimed neo-Nazis. I'm talking about folks being labeled as Nazis, Hitler, Gestapo, Goring, take a pick by their political opponents. American politicians from across the ideological spectrum, influential media figures, and ordinary people on social media casually use Holocaust terminology to bash anyone or any policy with which they disagree. The takedown is so common that it's even earned its own term, reductio ad Hitlerum, which has any, have you ever heard that term? I've never heard of that term uh, before, but uh, I don't know. She, she claims that it's a thing, but anyways, I'm going to, I'm going to jump down a little bit. It says this oversimplified approach to complex history is dangerous. I would agree with that. It can be dangerous, not uh, when it is oversimplified. You know, I think she doesn't address some of the nuances of our modern age where, you know, your tweet is only 144 characters or whatever it can be these days, uh, unless you have the blue check mark and then you can like write a book. But, um, you know, a, a lot of people, yeah, it, it, in general, yes, I would agree with, with, with the oversimplification can be dangerous. But then she says, when conducted with integrity and rigor, the study of history raises more questions than answers. I don't think that's always true. I think sometimes uh, we do get answers when we study history with rigor and integrity, which is what we try to do here uh, sometimes when we when we delve into the history. And then she goes on and says, as the most extensively documented crime the world has ever seen, the Holocaust offers an unmatched case study in how societies fall apart. Agreed. That's why it's important to, to look at and uh, remember and address. And she goes on, in the immutability of human nature and the dangers of unchecked state power, I agree with all that, of course. It is more than European or Jewish history, it is human history. Almost 40 years ago, the United States Congress chartered a Holocaust memorial on the National Mall for precisely this reason. The questions raised by the Holocaust transcend all divides. And I... I'll jump down. Um, let me know in the comments or the live chat even if you want me to post these links in the description, and I can, or you can just find them on, on your own. But um, at, she, she closes out this article by saying, careless Holocaust analogies may demonize, demean, and intimidate their targets. So hopefully we aren't being careless when we bring this topic up. If we are, uh, apologies, because we certainly, that is not, definitely not our intent. Um, I know it's not my intent or Steve's to be careless with these analogies, uh, but it is utterly important and imperative to, to look at our history and compare it to what's happening today. That's, you know, if you've been following us for any amount of time, you've probably heard me say before, if it's not okay to bring up the Holocaust Memorial Museum, the history of what led to the Holocaust, the history of World War II, the history of the superior orders defense at Nuremberg, which we'll get into all of that a little bit today. Uh, if it's careless to do that, or wrong to do that, or dangerous to do that, which, like I said, it can be, but if it if it is, then the FBI should stop the field trip where every employee goes to the Holocaust Memorial Museum because it's careless. To do that and the whole point of that trip is so we remember the history and think about it from an fbi agent's perspective or even an analyst or any any number of employees for me you know i think it's especially true for the agent the the agent um population in the fbi because they are the ones with the guns they are the ones with the arrest power they are the ones doing a lot of tactics that secret state police have done throughout history and and sometimes some of the tactics and techniques they use i think can be completely justified because we're not calling for lawlessness here but we are calling for a measured balance of your civil rights and your freedom with upholding the law and and enforcing the law so she goes on uh there is a cost for all of us because they distract from the real issues. She's talking about the careless analogies, distracting from the real issues, challenging our society because they shut down productive, thoughtful discourse. Again, that's not what we're trying to do here. We want to open discourse. We want to remember the past. 
she she goes on and says at a time when our country needs dialogue more than ever it is especially dangerous to exploit the memory of the holocaust as a rhetorical cudgel we owe the survivors more than that and we owe ourselves more than that agreed we don't want to use this as a rhetorical cudgel we want to be thoughtful uh and productive in the conversation about this and again with my background steve even even our friend kyle seraphin his background we all went to this trip we all enforced the law we all walked away from this field trip thinking how powerful it was and how important it was as as fbi agents to be because we were in training still uh, to remember this history to remember the power that you have as an fbi agent and to wield that power uh, not just freely and wantonly as you wished but within the confines of our system within the confines of our law and so with that we're going to head to a little bit more of the um of the exhibit uh that they have posted on the holocaust memorial museum's website and let's see here bear with me folks as i'm running things solo okay that's what i wanted up so i'll this video is just a few minutes i'll probably play just about the whole thing and maybe pause it as we go some were neighbors. And among them was some of the people he went to school with, some of his best friends, the guys from the card club. And out of that crowd came a friend of my father. We were friends, I thought. This was a boy that grew up with me for 16 years and he could do something like this. And that was my best friend. They were neighbors. The furniture and the glass was all in, in, in shadows. Everything was, my father's butcher store, the, the window was broken in and everything was demolished. And this was done by young people whom we knew. After the Holocaust, many survivors recognized the roles of Adolf Hitler and other true believers. Ideological hardliners who supported the Nazi party early on and who viewed Jews as biologically inferior. But how could so many ordinary fellow human beings, even people they knew, have betrayed them, taken pleasure in their persecution? benefited in some way from their misfortune. Before the Holocaust, Jewish life in Europe was diverse. In some places, especially in Central and Western Europe, many Jews were integrated into the larger society through school, the workplace, and other settings. In Eastern Europe, Many of the millions of Jews who lived there resided in predominantly Jewish communities, meeting non-Jews through business and the marketplace. After the Nazis took power in Germany, the new regime's goal was to deprive Jews of their rights and livelihoods and force them to leave the Reich. During World War II, Germany conquered and directly ruled vast areas of Eastern Europe. The marking and isolation of Jews from non-Jews were first steps toward their destruction. German-ruled Eastern Europe became the main terrain for the mass murder of Jews by Germans and their collaborators, including many Jews who lived far away in countries allied with or occupied by Germany, whom collaborating police often assembled for transport to the east. Oh, I was muted. Sorry. Uh, I'm just going to pause it there real quick to address one thing they said about uh, how the Jews were basically singled out and marked and identified. And I, I, I think just think of our recent history. And I, I, I especially point to when me and Kyle and Steve were all active FBI agents. Uh, if if you refused to get the COVID nineteen vaccine, you you were marked by having to wear a mask when others didn't, uh, not being allowed to go into the office, perhaps 
um, having to submit uh, your biological uh, data in a different way than other people. You had to submit to um, illogical testing, even if you didn't have any symptoms. And I, I bring up that example because it's these things start small. Like when when we're watching this video and we see the Jews being ushered around and and moved here and there and then being marked, like this just this didn't happen overnight. These things never do or rarely do they happen overnight. And you can point to other aspects of society, um, the demonization that happens with January Sixers, which we'll get into a little bit today as well. Uh, the the way they're marked. Uh, the way they're hunted by their fellow neighbor. Um, it's all things that have happened throughout history. Uh, the Holocaust Memorial Museum example is is poignant to me be because of our trip and because it's probably the most stark example uh, in history that we can point to where we can really dig in because people have, have done uh, such a tremendous job compiling the history and then having it readily accessible for us. And two, as far as history goes, this is relatively recent. Like this wasn't this wasn't that long ago. Not even a hundred years have passed yet since the end of World War II. So not even a hundred years since uh, the Jews and other Untermensch. You know, of course, the Holocaust Museum they focus primarily on on what happened to the Jews because they were the largest segment affected. In, by Nazi Germany and what was happening, uh, there were six million, roughly, who were who were uh, killed during the Holocaust of Jews alone. But there are ten million total who who were killed, and so there's you know four million of gypsies and homosexuals and you know uh, Catholics and other other Untermensch, which means underhuman or subhuman, is what what they all collectively were referred to as, but. Uh, Let's let's finish out this video here. One of the nastiest memories I have is getting going on that journey and people were lined up, up, up the stairs, up to the door of the apartment, waiting to ransack whatever we left behind. Uh, cursing at us, yelling at us, spitting at us as we left. The Holocaust would not have happened without centuries of the longest hatred, prejudices, discrimination, and attacks on Jews and Jewish property. Jews were a religious minority in largely Christian Europe. Other pressures and motives, ones that affect individuals in less extreme circumstances, also came to the fore fears and pressures in school, work, and the community. Roles as students, teachers, workers, police, soldiers, neighbors, friends influenced their choices to go along with their peers or to defer to authority, even when they had some moral qualms. This is the real truth. That was my girlfriend. We used to go to her together, have fun together, left together before the, the, uh, the last test, uh, before the graduation. We were studying together for nights and nights and she did it to me, to us, to my family. Many individuals also succumbed to pressures, risks, and age-old temptations. While it might be comforting to think that people were simply forced to do what they did, or that they were even brainwashed, examples of individuals who did help those in danger prove that people did have choices, even in the face of great risks and temptations. So Leo had a great deal of um, our possession at that point. And we went to Leo for food. Now I must impress upon you as to, to the character of Leo. Leo already had all the stuff that he could ever get from us, except maybe for some land. And all he had to do is tell us to get lost and he would have never seen us again. 
did. He fed us all along. So up here on the screen, and I apologize, I just saw in the chat I was muted, so I was pausing the video and talking into the ether, reading some of the things off the screen, uh, but basically just speaking to myself. So I apologize. This is why I need Steve <laughs> to hold my hand through these things. Uh, but here on the screen, it says, at crucial junctures, every individual makes decisions, and every decision is individual. Uh, you always have a choice, folks, always. Um, the Holocaust has shown that. You know, they mentioned people who who did make a difficult decision to do the right thing, to try to protect uh, people and, and ensure their safety. You always have a choice. No matter the pressures being pushed down on you, you always can decide what you're going to do. And carrying on, just still kind of setting the groundwork, this, this next exhibit or part of the exhibit, um, Summer Neighbors, I'll read a little bit of it. It says, how was the Holocaust possible? The central role of Adolf Hitler and other Nazi leaders in the murder of 6 million Jews is indisputable, but they could not carry this out alone. The Nazis had help from millions of ordinary people across Europe. Some Europeans acted out of hatred for Jews, but many others weighed various pressures and incentives in responding to the plight of the victims. Amid war and upheaval, a range of motivations, fear, greed, opportunity, led people to make choices that often had deadly impact. How did individuals respond to the persecution and murder of their Jewish classmates, coworkers, neighbors, and friends? How did relationships and roles shape their decision? What drove a rare few to risk helping the victims? The video touched on a little bit of that. And mostly in Germany, the decision was to just go along, to go along with the current thing. And down at the bottom of this portion of, of the, the online uh, you know, resource. It has neighbors, teenagers, workers, police, friends, and teachers. And we're probably really only going to touch on the neighbors and the police. Um, this, you know, at least with this iteration, because um, just be, for a time factor, and because I ramble incongruously sometimes. And so, uh, for police. In the modern context, I'm sorry, not police, for neighbors in the modern context, you know, recently the there was a, an arrest that the FBI made regarding uh, a January 6th subject. And it was the article I read or and heard about and talked about yesterday on a on a program that had me on a news show was about how the sedition hunters helped the FBI catch, catch this guy. He had like a Philadelphia Eagles hat that was kind of like rare or unique. And so they helped him. And I'm not saying that nobody on January 6th should have been arrested. There certainly were people who committed crimes that should have been arrested. I recently read about some guy who like pushed one of the Capitol police officers over like a ledge. And then that officer fell. Like, I don't, I don't know how far the article didn't say, but he landed on other officers that were like down below and, you know, I'm sure most of you have seen the picture of the guy with like the foghorn OC spray that he's spraying at, at officers like that stuff. I mean, yeah, you, like you deserve to be arrested for that. Um, but also, on the other hand, there are some of these cases where, you know, somebody's inside for seven minutes or 11 minutes or just in the area and they're getting years and years and years of sentences or. Um, one of the most hor horrifying stories I know of is of, of Gina Perna and, and what happened to her family, her nephew committed suicide because they were threatening years and years and years for him to be behind bars. Like that is, again, if we touch on, on Leviticus, uh, dealing falsely, it's not only dealing falsely, it's not, it's doing injustice in court. And it's being partial in your judgment. And that's been problematic as long as courts and law and justice has existed, which is to say forever, essentially. Uh, but as far as our neighbor, I, I wanted to play this clip from PBS from earlier this year, just right after the turn of the new year, this came out. And 
just listen to to what this neighbor has to say and and what she does uh spending her time you know hunting down people who are her perceived enemy in the beginning it was intense i would drop my children off at school i would come home and i would be on it almost like a work day and then once the kids were in bed i was up until two three four um and then waking up a couple hours later it takes its toll definitely okay so just think of that part right there most of you probably have families or other you know duties that you're responsible for she's staying up till 4 a.m and then getting up and getting her kids ready for school and then off to work and I mean, that, that's a crazy person. That's what that is. That's someone who is completely captured and is devoted to the cause. And I guess the, the reason I pause it there is, is because of how this tends toward a totalitarian or authoritarian um, mindset or regime. So I'm going to switch over here. I found this... Uh, definition, which I, I think is is pretty good. Uh, it comes from a book called Totalitarian and Authoritarian Regimes by Juan Jose Linz. And I'll just, I'll just read it here. It's probably kind of small on the screen. It says, the features which distinguish this regime from other and older autocracies, as well as from het <clears throat> heterocracies, are six in number. They are to recall what by now is a fairly generally accepted set of facts. One, a totalist ideology. Think of what that woman just said. That's a totalist ideology right there. She's all in. She's all in to hunt down her enemies. Two, a single party committed to this ideology and usually led by one man, the dictator. Okay, think of how our country is being led right now. Um, it's We don't have a dictator yet, but we have dictatorial uh, regime. You know, the regime is dictatorial in that the allegedly co-equal branches of government uh basically all work in concert to destroy the political enemies of the current regime and that regime that dictatorial power that is spread across all three branches has existed and perpetuated itself over for years and years and years to get to the point where it is today and joe biden's not a dictator he's a puppet and and a muppet as well but um three a fully developed secret police how about that? Fully developed secret police. And three kinds of monopoly or more precisely monopolistic control, namely that of mass communications, operational weapons, and all organizations, including economic ones, thus involving a centrally planned economy. We might add that these six features could, if greater simplicity is desired, lie grouped into three, a totalist ideology, a party reinforced by a secret police, and a monopoly of the three major forms of interpersonal confrontation in industrial mass society. What do you think about that right there? I mean, just those three, totalist ideology, a party reinforced by secret police, and a monopoly on communication and economy. Hmm. Such monopoly is not necessarily exercised by the party. This should be stressed at the outset in order to forestall a misunderstanding which has arisen in some of the critical commentaries in my earlier work. That, again, is from Totalitarian and Authoritarian Regimes by Juan Jose Linz. Let's go back to our Sedition Hunter friend. Oh. ...broke through police lines and stormed the Capitol building. And I just remember hearing shots have been fired, and I don't think I'll ever forget that moment in my life. In the following days, Sandy, not her real name, joined a massive citizen effort to identify the individuals who broke into the Capitol. She's been directly responsible for helping to put people behind bars, and she now has to hide her identity for fear of retaliation. One of the more insidious ones would be um, a J6er who is yet to be arrested. He started sending me um, like 
videos of him racking his gun. Sandy is today part of an in. I'll pause it right there. Uh, that guy, that little video that they just played of, of that J6er racking his gun and sending that to her. I mean, again, think of what I read from to start from Leviticus. Two, two wrongs don't make a right, as your mom and dad would say. Uh, that guy, probably one of the ones, without knowing any, any other details, but based on that behavior, probably one of the ones who should be arrested. And I guess something along the lines of these sedition hunters, I'm not saying, well, actually, let's just read right here from PBS. It says the January 6th investigation is the largest FBI operation in history. That's something that they're very proud of and will tell you about as, you know, whenever the opportunity arises. But let's not forget, you know, Kyle and I talked about this last week, uh, and it's been kind of uh, in the news cycle since then, is the 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 potential domestic terrorist with the pipe bombing incidents at the DNC and RNC. So where are the sedition hunters at with that one? You know, that, that should be the primary goal of anybody trying to help law enforcement. And honestly, if the FBI uh, was really honing in on that case instead of some of these other ridiculous January 6th cases, maybe they would have found that person by now if they were actually looking, if it was actually a real um, potential terrorist terrorism act. But it says more than 1,200 people have been charged and over 900 convicted, but has stretched the Bureau's resources and has often had to rely on the work of citizen investigators who came to be known as sedition hunters. Judy Woodruff spoke with one of these anonymous sleuths as part of her series, America at a Crossroads. So a couple things there on um, anonymity in law enforcement. So for one, uh, if you're a law enforcement officer and you get an anonymous tip, you can go investigate that. You can't do much uh, by way of enforcing any law unless you um, separately corroborate some of what you received in that tip. Now, with these sedition hunters, they're probably able to corroborate quite a bit. Uh, and honestly, like I said before about some of the people who needed to be arrested, like I, I just remember from my days working some of these leads, like you're pouring through video, you have other cases going on. And then you have the politically captured headquarters and uh, DOJ attorneys like breathing down your neck, trying to get, you know, charges on these people and then even trying to just drum up charges. So when you're trying to do the work correctly, like it's it, it, the resources are stretched thin. So sometimes it's per perfectly appropriate for citizens to send in tips and to help. Now, like this lady staying up till 4am. I mean, like I said, that's just a crazy person at that point. Like, like you gotta get some work-life balance there. Like, even if this is your hobby and you think it's important and let's say, let's give her the benefit of the doubt and say she is finding like some of the more violent or people who should have been arrested. Okay. Well, again, like at, at what point are you just completely turning against your neighbor? Like, I, I doubt that she was only going after the worst of the worst, uh, because it seemed like, um, a lot of these sedition hunters aren't able to do that because guess what? They didn't have access to the video like an FBI agent did. So the video we had was all the stuff that didn't get released. And a lot of it still hasn't been released. And so you could see, you know, different corridors and hallways and whatnot and trying to find your subject in there if you, if you needed to. But here we have these, these people who are just completely turned over and, and given to this, political and ideological capture of oh these people who were there on January 6th all of them are bad that seems to be the general takeaway like um before I testified in May like this is probably like February or March as some of you know I have a substack lastline.substack.com if you're interested um and my my attorneys thankfully they said you know try to restrict that and initially when I started my substack they didn't have like a private like you couldn't have it private, but then they, you know, implemented a new setting where you could, where you could make it private. And so I did. And then uh, the Democrats and or FBI leaked some of my information about my, um, you know, my, my background and what happened to me in the FBI and what happened to me at my deposition in February, last February. And then I, like, I start, you know, getting emails and, Request to my Substack, 
like some fake journalist from Rolling Stone tried to subscribe to my Substack, and I was like, "Huh, what's going on here?" And it turned out it was because a bunch of info had been leaked. Well, some of the people who tried to subscribe to my Substack were the sedition hunters. I didn't let them at the time. I mean, if they hear this and are still interested, hey, please become a a founding member and send a little bit of cheddar my way because here I am still unpaid. But uh, I denied their requests back then, and I was like, "Why the heck would they even want to?" like read my Substack or see what I talk about or write about. And it's like, because like I said, they're politically captured. Like that is really the the root of it. The point of it is that they don't necessarily care about catching violent offenders as much as they do about catching anyone who is politically or ideologically opposed to how they think. And if you listen to the Kyle Serafin show yesterday, he had Steve on for friendly Friday and they talked about this a little bit. And Steve mentioned how, a lot of these sedition hunters are um, foreign and and they're sending in tips, you know, from Sweden or from wherever, whatever countries they're in. And it's like, that's kind of crazy, too, um, that the FBI, our government would be like, oh, yeah, let's just take tips from anywhere we can get it uh, and, and see see how reliable they are. And they're relying on like PBS called them sleuths from around the country and around the world. Um, but I guess to tie it back to the, the somewhere neighbors, um, the somewhere neighbors exhibit is if you remember the video I played from the, the somewhere neighbors talking about, you know, these people, they, you know, they were legitimate neighbors. Like they, they, they were, you know, showing pictures like, Hey, they're all together at like a family picnic or barbecue or whatever, or, and, then these neighbors are turning on each other. Or then when Jews are getting carted off, people are standing in the hallway of the apartment building to go ransack the rooms uh, and take the possessions of, of their neighbors. And, you know, again, I hearken back to what I read from Leviticus, you shall not steal. I mean, that, that's plain and simple. So just because they're getting carted off, you, you can steal their possessions. And think again of our modern day context the summer of love in 2020. Okay. Sure. Maybe nobody's getting carted off, but there was lots of theft going on, just breaking into people's businesses and stealing whatever you want. Like it, the depravity of man, I guess is the, is the point is the root of this. And so now, you know, now we have the, the sedition hunters helping. Okay. Neighbors, you know, we've talked about informants before, uh, what the what the FBI calls a CHS, a confidential human source. Uh, there, I bet you, like there are FBI agents out there. I don't know for sure, but I would bet you that there are some who have these sedition hunters as a CHS. Because then it's win win. Me as an FBI agent, I get another source on the books that makes my boss happy. The sedition hunter, they probably get paid by me, and when they provide me tips, so that probably makes them happy. Helps their sleuthing a little bit. And that was no different. Uh, well, you know what? I'll actually move away from from the Nazi example, and I'll go I'll go even further back because it's no different than secret police have been throughout history. And it's uh, it, let's see here. I have this up. Um, it's the the Austrian secret state police. So. This isn't Germany, and this goes way back. This goes to back to 1786. That's when this, I don't know how to say it. It's like Gehemi Staatspolizei. It just means secret state police. And they were established in September of 1786. And let's see, it says their operations were particularly in the monitoring of mail. So as, or no, they, they were asked, the, the uh, Archduke Joseph II, he asked the uh, the the leadership of these of the secret police to be conservative in its operations, particularly particularly in the monitoring of mail, so as not to damage the reputation of the post and civil freedom. And then it says uh, the secret state police gathered its information through the monitoring of mail. Okay, so remember I said this is 1786. The secret state police gathered its information through the monitoring of mail. Today, that's called the mail cover. In the FBI, that's called a mail cover. So you could still monitor mail. 
And then it says the recruiting of domestic servants as informants. Okay, we just talked about the sedition hunters who are not even necessarily being recruited as informants. They're just doing it anyways because some were neighbors. And so they're reporting on, on their neighbors as informants. But look, the, what I'm saying is that none of this has changed ever in history. The secret state police. And remember our definition of a totalitarian and authoritarian regimes about how they develop informants and how they use these same type of tactics. Okay. And then it says, and the collection of information from the regular police. I've said it before. I say it all the time. When I was an FBI agent, the first place I would stop, the first place I would call was the regular police, the real police, as I like to call them, because they are. And the FBI pretty much isn't. Uh, they're the secret police. And so it says about this secret state police back in 1786, uh, some of the methods, such as the monitoring of mail, produce information used to guide investigations, but inadmissible in court under Austrian law. What does that remind you of? FISA 702 is what that reminds me of today in the modern context. Because that's what the FBI does. I mean, we know they do it because some of some of that has come out publicly now. Uh, what were there? 286,000 Fourth Amendment violations regarding FISA 702? And then there were like over a million Fourth Amendment violations regarding S S FISA 702. Like, I forget all the details off the top of my head, but in one regard, it was like like the incorrect searching. And then in, in another regard, it was, I don't know. But, you know, I should have pulled those up because um, I'm, I'm making that connection here. But in 1786, it's like, okay, just look in the mail and then, you know, we'll do the end around and come up with our probable cause in a different way since we know the end state already. That's exactly what's happening with FISA 702. So in 1786, it was happening. In 2024, it's happening. Then it says the secret state police occasionally secretly detained Staatsverbrecher, political criminals, suspected of high treason who could not be subject to public detention and trial without the risk of igniting public sympathy. What does that sound like? <laughs> political criminals. I mean, uh, Donald Trump. How about that? Sure, he's not been detained yet, but look all the, look at all the people who have been detained, in, in part because of the help of the sedition hunters and others like that. Um, it says, to avoid transforming them into social or political icons, their guilt and punishment was secretly and singularly determined by the Archduke. Ooh, that's insidious. So they really kept them, kept them detained and under lock and key. I wonder how much longer it'll take before that happens here. Um, let's see. So... The, that's the secrets, the secret police. Um, let me pull up this guy back to our Holocaust Memorial Museum tour and see what they have to say about the police. It says Nazi leaders relied on local police in Germany and across Europe to help carry out the Holocaust. Many police officers were not Nazis or extremists. Nevertheless, they often arrested Jews helped deport them to camps, and killed them in mass shootings. Some acted out of deep hatred of Jews, while others claimed to be following orders. Ooh, our favorite, the superior orders defense. Opportunities to advance in the workplace, bonds with other officers, and a sense of duty also led many police to join in the persecution and murder of Europe's Jews. I'll probably do, maybe with Steve, maybe when I'm doing one of these alone again, but I'll probably do an even deeper dive into the law enforcement aspects of Nazi Germany and the lead up to it and just the problems there. And, and like I said, at the outset too, the, the history, this is why it's so important is because we have this prime example that we can learn from, but lots of people act like it's apropos to talk about, which it's not, I mean, we should be able to talk about anything from history compared to what we're seeing in modern day and be thoughtful about it and not, um, you know, not to demean what happened, not to diminish the the victims and the the family of victims who who still live on today. I mean, it we shouldn't forget these things. That's the whole point. That was the whole point of our of our field trip is to not forget. Um, but I guess the part that stands out the most to me here is when it, where it says others claim to be following orders. Oh, man, how often do we hear that? We hear that so much. 
So I have this next clip pulled up. I don't know if I'll play the whole thing, but I'll I'll get some of this in here. What happens when a soldier is given an unjust order um, and they think it's unjust? Uh, do they have uh, a duty to disobey that order? Um, from what I understand, from what I uh, learned, uh, the idea that a soldier is indeed, uh, that it is indeed the responsibility of a soldier not to carry forward with an, a, a manifestly illegal order, an unjust order, is a very new thing. Um, and it hasn't been clearly worked out in courts, uh, despite all of the international human rights accords we have. Uh, you say that it stems from a fellow named Asa Oppenheim, I gather, a German writer of the, uh, of the uh, 1900s who, who established the principle that a soldier, uh, you know, is excused if he's following orders. That's about what it comes down to. That's right. That was the, the, the so-called superior orders defense was yeah. pretty much accepted from what I understand. It was, it was part <clears throat> of the U.S. military code, the British military code. All Western countries kind of had this idea that if a soldier got orders to do something, they are not responsible. Um, then we had World War II and the Nuremberg trials. And we had the case of, well, how are we going to hold uh, Nazis responsible for what they did? And the codes were revised. So now it is recognized that you can't simply invoke superior orders, that sometimes you get an order that is manifestly illegal, but there's still a lot uh, legally and morally to work out. In that. You, you know, uh, that was one of the reasons I expect why a lot of people took umbrage against the Nuremberg trials not necessarily or not even at all because they wanted to protect Nazis, but because they said, you're invoking a new law which didn't exist before. To, my, to which my answer is, so what? I really appreciate that answer he said right there. Uh, so what? Exactly. If we realize that we have bad laws, they should be changed. It, <laughs> it's a damn shame, actually, that it took something like the Holocaust for the world to say, hmm, maybe we should change our, our uh, international law and, and maybe we should all go back to our countries and, and tell our military and police like, hey, we're not going to do it that way anymore. Like it took the Holocaust for humans to realize that. I mean, it's really sad actually if you, if you think about it. Well, right. I you mean, know. maybe maybe the, the, the lesson to be drawn from that is that the previous law and the legal regime was a flawed one. Um, well, worse than fraud, it, it was an immoral, turned out to be to be an immoral regime, and, and yet that immorality was used as the defense. That was just following orders. Give me a break. Now, you know, who knows what that's going to mean for our country in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, because there's been a strong movement to say that whatever we did, if you disagree with it, you must nonetheless reckon with the fact that people were doing what they were ordered to do by, from the very highest levels. Okay, so think about what he just said right there. This video was posted 11 years ago. It looks even older than that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I'm looking here. It doesn't, yeah. So let, let, let's just say it's at least from 2012. That's when it was posted. And what he just said about what that's going to look like in the next 10 or 12 years or, or whatever about our own country. I mean, it's like the guy had a crystal ball, but he didn't. What did he do? He, he's a historian. He looked into history and then compares it to what he's seeing back then, to what we're seeing now, to what we can point to even in recent history and say, does that superior order defense hold up? No, it doesn't. I mean, and then look, you know, that's look at me, Kyle, Steve, the most recent one. If you've been following along, there was a a supervisory special agent out of the uh, Boise, Idaho resident agency who recently was terminated because he refused to sign off on a warrant. Kyle was posting about that on Twitter. I'm sure. Hope, well, I'm not sure, but hopefully he'll give us an update or there'll be some more open source info out there come next week. But all of us, and there's a number of other people too that we could talk about um, who just were trying to uphold our oath and say, hey, just because you're ordering this doesn't make it right. Just because you're ordering this doesn't make it legal. And all my supervisors, they always said, well, this, this is what headquarters is telling us. This is what, you know, whatever. And it's like, that's not good enough. That is not good enough. But hey, if you recall our definition of, of uh, 
what or our description of what the secret police in 1786 Austria were doing. I mean, of course, that's what they're going to rely on. Or if you think about the video we played early on from Somewhere Neighbors, the Somewhere Neighbors exhibit. That I mean, this is human nature, folks, and and this is why it's so important. I think to talk about um, even Cambridge. Oh, they got an ad up here. Let's see right here, and Cambridge has has a definition for secret police too. It's good. It's succinct. It says a police force that secretly collects information about people who oppose the government and tries to make such opposition weaker, often using illegal and violent methods. I would say um, it's clear the FBI uses illegal methods. I mean, we talk about that all the time. I just mentioned FISA and how what we know of FISA, what they've done to be illegal. But, hey, they fixed it because there's a new virtual academy training. So it's fixed is what Director Ray will tell you. And I would say, oh, well, we haven't seen violent methods yet. Okay, well, what about that guy in Salt Lake City who was murdered by the FBI? You know, um, do I know he was murdered? No. Do I think it was a good shoot? I don't know. I don't know the details, but I do know when you go in heavy handed with a SWAT team like that, your chances of um, somebody who's a little unhinged becoming more unhinged makes it even worse. And, you know, my background, I was I was SWAT. There is a time and place for SWAT. Is it for for that guy that the FBI had a case open on for many, many, many months? And then they decided when Joe Biden was going to visit that, OK, it's time to hit his house with a with a SWAT team. I mean. Secret, secret police, that's what they would do because, hey, they'll just bulldoze you over instead of taking the more critical approach and say, hey, well, when does this guy go to work? When does he leave the house? Is he armed when he leaves? And figuring out those things first, like doing surveillance on him for a week leading up to it because obviously he never carried out his threats. But, um, yeah, that's <sighs> secret state police. That's what that's what they do. Um Let's see here. Some other other uh, things I had open I wanted to get to, which I see we're running up against the clock a little bit. But out. Uh, let's see. Let's go. Let's go here. Let's go here. I don't know if you guys saw this. This is another video from 2012. Um, this is horrifying. I think. Let's see what you guys think about it. Dr. Olson had a decision. You are in the perfect place to start on blockers. And she promises to begin giving her estrogen, female hormones, in two years. Around 13. That's what I think. Yes, you're not going to develop breast buds on the blockers. But um, you're not going to wait until 16 to start. You know that, okay? Josie received the blockers as an implant in her arm. It's okay if you cry. So with all the bravery she could muster, Josie held on tight as another chapter opened in this young girl's life. A lot of times it strikes me that had this happened just 20 years ago, thank you, I wouldn't have been able to give her blockers and she would have had to go through male puberty. That terrifies me. It's all done. Do you want a hug? I don't know that she would have survived male puberty. Oh man, that that's hard to watch for me. Um, I don't know that she would have survived male puberty. Josie is is was from birth a, a male, a boy, initially named Joey. And Joey's mom was that woman who just ended the that clip saying, I don't know if she would have survived male puberty. I don't know much uh, of the details there. I read an article about Josie and it's, it, it, it made me think again of the Holocaust Memorial Museum and this time with the, the Nazis eugenics program. But this mom is willfully doing it. She's my biggest takeaway from, from the video and the article I read was that the mom, this mom is probably forcing this on the child and twisting the child's thinking and manipulating the child to think that they were a girl when they were a boy. And think of that. We just saw that person get injected with puberty blockers and it's okay. The mom is cheering it. The doctor is, you know, I've talked about this before with, with 
Lena Wen, how this is how Satan doesn't come at you with a pitchfork and fire and a sharp tail. He comes at you with a nice smile and, you know, a gentle touch from, from your doctor saying it's all going to be okay. And, oh, don't worry, you're going to have breast buds before you're 16. You know that. This is satanic, folks, plain and simple. And just like it was when the Nazis were doing their eugenics program, it's just as evil today as it was then. And this is how Satan maneuvers though and works though. So so unlike God, Satan is not all powerful, all knowing. He doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. So he's constantly maneuvering and manipulating and working to destroy and and to steal souls. And so what he's doing now is like what we just saw in that video. Um, and is, is getting people to, to think it's good. Not only like, oh, you do what you want with your body, but to actually think it's good and to force it on others and to make you accept these false truths, these false realities. But back in the 1900s, early 1900s, early to mid, well, yeah, pretty much early, like I want to say like 19, I don't know when they started, I forget uh, all the things I've been looking at, but like 1910 or so maybe um, through like the 30s and even in the Holocaust, um, the the eugenics program in Nazi Germany, a lot of that revolved around sterilization, which that's what we were seeing happen to Josie. They were being sterilized because the, Josie is Joey. Joey is a boy. And so puberty blockers preventing Joey from going through male puberty and trying to change his anatomy, which his anatomy and biology this is natural. This is this is like going against God's natural law now. So by doing that, forcing those puberty blockers in his arm, they they're, they're essentially sterilizing him. That's what we're seeing with a lot of these the, the transgender movement. And so we'll go here to science as salvation. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? Well, Weimar eugenics, 1919 through 1933. It says eugenics ideas were embraced worldwide, especially in Western Europe. Today, eugenics has been discredited as a racially biased pseudoscience. I wonder when that, if that will happen again with the, you know, eugenics like program that we're seeing with the trans movement. And down here near the bottom, it says when perfected surgical sterilization, which let's just pull up their definition and says sterilization, a procedure that destroys the ability of a person to reproduce during the 1930s, around 400,000 Germans were sterilized in the name of improving the German nation and purifying Aryan racial stock. So that part has changed a little bit, but how many people in America alone have been sterilized in the last 20 years? I don't know. I don't know the answer, but we know it's happening and it's being forced on you now and you better accept it. You better accept it or else. It says sterilizations were also performed on thousands of concentration camp inmates in the 1940s. A lot of that had to do with experiments they were doing uh, to to, fi- to figure out different things. And that stuff is, is horrifying as well. But here it says, when perfected surgical sterilization became the most common proposal for preventing unproductive inferiors from reproducing and for saving on costs of special care and education. But sterilization gained only limited political support. Catholics objected to interfering with human reproduction. and Liberals decried the violation of individual rights. Boy, that's a far cry from today. Liberals decried the violation of individual rights. What about someone like Josie being pumped with puberty blockers? Do, do, do you think they actually had a real choice in that? I don't know that they did. But as uh, we discussed the Memorial Museum, it'll always be fond for me. But I say, you know, Nazism just changes. It doesn't ever go away. It just changes. And I think what we're seeing a lot today is is just a modern form of Nazism. I mean, okay, sure, we don't have to call it that. LGBTQ plus IA cult. Uh, combined with the totalitarian and authoritarian regime. Um, or like, you know, just a, a lot of the titles I've read from from the Holocaust Memorial Museum today, Summer Neighbors, we talked about informants, we talked about 
We talked about the sedition hunters. Uh, we talked about police. Uh, we talked about um, the eugenics program and science as salvation. I mean, how much have you heard that in the last couple years about science, science and government being your new God? Don't give into it, folks. Don't give into it. Um, I think that's probably a good uh, wrap wrapping point for today. Sorry for some of the, uh, oh, actually, no. <laughs> I'm going to play one more video. I forgot about this. As we think about an authoritarian regime and the good men and women in law enforcement, um, if you have kids around, you might want to mute because I think this gets a little spicy. And I've been here my whole fuck because I can yell. Because I can yell. Because I can yell. And I'm fucking angry. That's why. I hear you. I do hear you. So why can't I get in the fucking building? Because you can't get in right now. No one's going. Why? Where's the mayor at? Y'all, these fucking towns are fucking sham, yo. It's all about fucking money. It's a fucking money grab. Y'all give a fuck about the motherfuckers that was born and fucking raised here. Y'all raised the fucking rent so fucking high. Can't afford to live here, but y'all gonna bring some other motherfuckers here? That doesn't fucking add up. It doesn't make no fucking sense. None. None. It doesn't make any sense. So here, this guy, he's in Boston. He's trying to go to the community center, and he's turned away. And you've got the Boston police en masse out front of the community center because... It's currently being used to house illegal immigrants who are in Boston because they didn't have anywhere else to put them. So they're going into this already uh, poorer part of the community, poor, poorer neighborhood. And this guy's trying to go to the community center. He probably does that all the time. And he shows up and they won't let him in because nobody can go in because the, the mayor said so. Okay. Well, there you go. Police just following orders even though they know they're wrong. I mean, that cop was even saying, I hear you, I hear you, I hear what you're saying. Okay, well, why are you just following your orders then when you know they're wrong? Well, because my paycheck and my pension and, you know, fill in the blank. My, 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 my. It's all about, it's all about me, right? I got to put myself first and, oh, I can't risk losing my job. But too bad for this guy in his community center. We're just going to put migrants, illegal, illegal immigrants into it. All right. But uh, I guess before we go, I don't have much of a palate cleanser. Sorry. This is this is why Steve and I are a good tandem because um, he's, he's usually a little more prepared with something like that. Uh, as I was preparing this, I didn't uh, I didn't come across anything that cleansed my palate. So I didn't have any palate cleanser to share. But um, thanks for for joining me today. It was kind of weird. I know there were some technical errors on my part, so sorry about that. I need some more uh, more experience running this solo, but it's kind of weird doing alone because I feel like I'm talking, I'm talking like to, to nobody. I'm just like staring at my screen and the camera. I'm not as good at as as Kyle um, <laughs> is with with viewing the chat as he's as his brain is running a, a thousand miles an hour and keeping up with what he wants to say and everything. Um, I probably missed some of these. I don't know, but I see a rumble rant from, from Kelly D Kelly. I feel like you're hitting us up every week with a $50 rumble rant, which is awesome. But she says, great show. Very informative. Well, we appreciate you. We appreciate all of you listening. If you could uh, hit that subscribe button, if you haven't, and please give us a like or a thumbs up on rumble. Um, Oh, Ed Allen. I see another one here. Thanks, Ed. 20 bucks. Nicely done, GOB. Thanks. I know that's not entirely true, though, because I know there was like a, a period where I had myself muted. But uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm like talking over here about, you know, the Holocaust or whatever. And then I, I that was one of the points where I, I jumped in the chat and I was like, I was like, oh, oh, I'm muted. Great. They, they miss everything I said. But I guess, you know what? I know we're going a little bit, a little bit over the hour mark, but I'll stick around if you guys want to throw some um question questions or whatever in the chat or 
want me to clarify on anything, I'll stick around for a little bit and um, and entertain that for a little while if you guys want. But I'll just um, I'll actually talk about our sponsor and see if anybody posts anything um, that you want me to address or readdress uh, as we go. But but yeah, the uh, only sponsor as of now for American Radicals podcast is True Earth. True Earth Pharmacy, you can use promo code AMRAD24. You'll get yourself 10% off, which is very cool. They got some good products. I know Steve is playing around with some, and I'm hoping to get myself uh, like a like a tester pack of some of the ones that I've been eyeing up soon and um, see what they can do for me. Because as some of you know, I, I'm still kind of recovering from surgery that I had just, just a couple days after Christmas. Like the recovery has not been great. Um, as you know, being indefinitely suspended forever without pay has not been, been great for my mental health or my physical health either. Uh, so I'm trying to improve on all those things too. And, um, uh, if you are as well, you can give true earth a try too, and let's all do it together. And hopefully we'll have a, a better, healthier 2024. Um, let's see here. Let me check out the chat real quick and see i just see a lot of great show you did a great job thank you i appreciate it you all um for saying saying being so so kind i feel like i was a little bit scattered over here um today kind of running solo but um i appreciate it i think i think with that i'm going to to shut her down i hope you all have a great weekend thanks for sticking with me even when i muted myself but i hope this was informative I hope, like we addressed in the beginning, that it was not uh, denigrating the the history of the Holocaust or what happened in that awful period of human history. Uh, and hopefully it was more akin to uh, leading us to preventing another awful period of human history. Because knowledge is power, history is power, and comparing what we're seeing today to what we know from the past, I think is perfectly acceptable when you're doing it in a way that, you know, isn't just like meme culture, fly by, fly, fly through and, and leaving out important details. So I hope that was the case. If not, please let me know and we will try to improve. But thanks again, everybody. And we will see you on Tuesday. You've been listening to the voice of the suspendables on the American Radicals podcast. Follow us on rumble.com slash amradpod.